Part four, chapter five of the life of Florence Nightingale, volume one. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Florence Nightingale, Volume 1, by Edward Tyus Cook. The Religious Sanctions, Suggestions for Thought, 1860. Parts 1, 2, and 3. It fortifies my soul to know that, though I perish, truth is so that howsoe'er I stray and range, whate'er I do, thou dost not change. I steadier step when I recall that if I slip, thou dost not fall. A. H. Clough The life and work of Miss Nightingale, as described in the foregoing chapters of this memoir, were such as were unlikely to have proceeded from any one who was not possessed by some strong spiritual impulse. It was a life devoted to work, and in that work she sought and found herself. Yet from what is ordinarily called self-seeking, her work was conspicuously free. The body was so weak that the wonder is how a woman in delicate health was able to perform so much of what Sidney Herbert called a man's work in the world. She was supported, sustained, inspired by great spiritual force and energy, which drove her to seek self-satisfaction in a dedicated life of work, and which in its turn found expression in a form of religion independently attained and intensely held. In a previous chapter, I have traced the development of Miss Nightingale's religious views during her earlier years, and have shown how they broadened out into a tolerance which took more account of deeds than of creeds. But, as was there said, she was interested in creeds also. Her nature was profoundly religious, and she had a mind as apt for speculative as for practical thought. Her critical spirit had detected weak places, as she deemed them, in the creed alike of Protestants and of Catholics. The precise and practical bent of her mind could not be satisfied until she had found for the feelings of her heart some more logical basis. She was thus driven forward to that reconstruction of her religious creed to which passing reference has already been made. At the beginning of her diary for 1853, on a page placed opposite January for a memoranda from 1852, there is this entry, the last day of the old year. I am so glad this year is over. Nevertheless, it has not been wasted, I trust. I have remodeled my whole religious belief from beginning to end. I have learnt to know God. I have recast my social belief. Have them both written for use when my hour is come. This entry refers to the manuscripts called, respectively, Religion and Novel in a letter of 1852 already cited. The manuscripts, after being read by one or two friends, remained for some years in Miss Nightingale's desk, though during that period of strenuous activity in the world of deeds, the subject matter, we may be sure, often occupied her thoughts. In 1858 and 1859, she took up the manuscripts again. The companionship of Arthur Hugh Clough who at this time was much with her, was doubtless one of the causes which led to an active resumption of her theological speculations. She was rereading Mill's Logic and reading Edgar Quinet's Histoire de Mesidée. 
Mr. Clough's notes of conversation with her show how much she was indebted in her speculations to Mill. Guinea and J.S. Mill, wrote Mr. Clough, March 2, 1859, seemed, she said, the two men who had the true belief about God's laws. She referred in particular to two chapters in Mill's logic about free will and necessity, which seemed to her to be the beginning of the true religious belief. The excellence of God, she said, is that he is inexorable. If he were to be changed by people's praying, we should be at the mercy of who prayed to him. It reminded her, she said, of what old James Martin said some years ago when she saw him, that he didn't like having dissenters praying. He liked to have the prayers all set down and arranged. He didn't know what people mightn't be praying, perhaps that the money might be taken out of his pocket and put into theirs. She rewrote some of what had been written six or seven years before, and she added a great deal more. Towards the end of 1859, she began printing it. In the following year, the whole was in type, and a very few copies were struck off. This book, entitled Suggestions for Thought, is in three volumes, comprising in all 829 large octavo pages. It was never published by her. It has, with conspicuous merits, equally conspicuous defects. The merits are of the substance, the defects are of form and arrangement. But Miss Nightingale never found time or strength or inclination. I know not which or how many of the three were wanting to remove the defects by recasting the book. Unpublished, therefore, it is likely, I suppose, to remain. But as it stands, it is a remarkable work. No one, indeed, could read it without being impressed by the powerful mind, the spiritual force, and with some qualifications, the literary ability of the writer. If she had not during her more active years been absorbed in practical affairs, or if at a later time her energy or inclination had not been impaired by ill health, Miss Nightingale might have attained a place among the philosophical writers of the 19th century. Section 2 in 1860, at the time when Miss Nightingale put her suggestions for thought into type, she was half inclined to publish the work. She consulted some of her intimate friends on the point. She also submitted the manuscript to two famous men, than whom none were better qualified to give a just opinion, John Stuart Mill and Benjamin Jowett. With Mr. Mill, she was not personally acquainted, and she sought an introduction through her friend Mr. Chadwick. By way of breaking the ground, he sent to Mill a copy of Notes on Nursing. Mill promised to read the book immediately, though he added, I do not need it to enable me to share the admiration which is felt towards Miss Nightingale more universally, I should imagine, than towards any other living person. This expression must have pleased her, for she was a diligent reader, and with some differences of opinion, a warm admirer of Mill's books. Being thus assured of his good will, and being further informed through Mr. Chadwick that no formal introduction was necessary, if Miss Nightingale conceived that Mr. Mill could be of any service to her, she sent him a copy of the suggestions, or rather of a portion of them. He read it and was greatly interested, so much so that, in addition to sending her a letter of general criticism, he was at the pains to annotate it in the margin. He hoped that he might be allowed to see the remainder. A perusal of this increased his high opinion. 
I have seldom felt less inclined to criticize, he said, than in reading this book. But one or two criticisms he did offer. For your consideration, he said, and not as pretending to lay down the law on the subject to anyone, much less to you. And he invited further correspondence. Miss Nightingale's essays remained in his mind, for in a famous book published nine years later, he introduced an allusion to them. To Mr. Jowett, Miss Nightingale was introduced by Mr. Clough, who had asked him to read some of the suggestions. It seemed to me, he said to Mr. Clough, after reading it, as if I had received the impress of a new mind. His interest in such philanthropic efforts as those connected with the name of Florence Nightingale is reflected in a passage in the famous essay on interpretation, and he must have been the more interested in the suggestions when Mr. Clough told him that she was the author and asked him to write to her about them. Her name for the book in familiar letters was The Stuff, by which name also it is spoken of in her will. I write to thank you, said Mr. Jowett, in one of the earlier letters of a long series, April 6, 1861, for the stuff to which I shall venture to add the epithet precious. He thought as highly of the book as did Mr. Mill, though in a different way, and he too, in addition to long letters of general discussion suggested by the book, annotated it in detail. His annotations are most voluminous and careful. They are admirable in criticism, and from them alone a reader not otherwise acquainted with Mr. Jowett's work might form a tolerably accurate idea of his character and modes of thought. The proof copy of the stuff, with Mr. Jowett's annotations, was one of Miss Nightingale's most cherished possessions. I shall refer to some of the detailed criticisms later. I ventured, he said, to put down the criticisms, which occur to me quite baldly. They must not be supposed to be inconsistent with the greatest respect for the mind and genius of the writer. The criticisms were many and often far-reaching, but no less frequent are expressions such as very good, very fine, and noble. On the immediate question to publish or not to publish, Mr. Mill and Mr. Jowett gave what might at first sight appear to be very different advice. Mr. Mill, after reading the first installment of the book, said, If any part of your object in sending it was to know my opinion, as to the desirableness of its being published, I have no difficulty in giving it strongly in the affirmative. And in his next letter he said, If when I had only read the first volume I was very desirous that it should be published, I am much more so after reading the second. Mr. Jowett, on the other hand, was against publication. It is presumptuous, I fear, to pose as a court of appeal between two such judges, but I will hazard the opinion that Mr. Jowett's was the better advice. And this is not quite so presumptuous as it may seem, for the fact is that though Mr. Mill wanted to see the book published, he would also have been glad to see it recast. And similarly, Mr. Jowett, though he urged that the book must be recast, was very anxious that it should ultimately be published. I should be very sorry, he wrote at the end, if the greater part of this book did not in some form see the light. I have been greatly struck by reading it, and I am sure it would similarly affect others. Many sparks will blaze up in people's minds from it. In point of arrangement, indeed, wrote Mr. Mill of condensation, and of giving, as it were, a keen edge to the argument, it would have much benefited by the recasting which you have been prevented from giving it, by a cause on all other accounts so much to be lamented. 
This, however, applies more to the general mode of laying out the argument than to the details. Mr. Mill put it admirably in these two sentences, points which Mr. Jowett over and over again explained and illustrated with the utmost care in his detailed annotations, and they are points which must strike every reader of Miss Nightingale's book. The repetitions are tiresome, nay, almost intolerable, to anyone who reads a considerable portion of it consecutively. And Miss Nightingale, in a later letter to Madame Mole, says that she could not read the book herself. The argument in isolated passages and sometimes in particular chapters is closely knit, but in the book taken as a whole, it often loses itself in digressions, and there is a lack of any consistent ordo concatenatioque rerum. The book is as remarkable for literary felicities in detail as it is deficient in the art of literary arrangement. Some consideration of this point will serve to illustrate an aspect of Miss Nightingale's character. The defect which Mr. Mill and Mr. Jowett saw in her suggestions for thought might seem to be among the last to be expected in her. Her mind was singularly methodical and orderly. This was one of the essential characteristics of her work as an administrator and a reformer. In this very book, the characteristic appears, though in a somewhat superficial form. Each volume is prefaced by an elaborate digest, with many divisions and subdivisions. Yet the fact remains that the appearance of close method does not correspond with any similarly close arrangement of the material. It may be said that the subject matter is less tractable by methodic heads and subheads than the organization of a department or the arrangement of a hospital, and that is true but it is worth noting that something of the same criticism that was made by Mr. Mill and Mr. Jowett upon Miss Nightingale's suggestions for thought was made by another able man upon her notes on the army. I consider them deficient, wrote Sir John McNeill, November 18, 1858, in a certain form of artistical skill or art and chargeable with frequent repetitions, but I confess that these deficiencies constitute to my mind some of their greatest charms they give to the whole the most unmistakable stamp of earnestness and truth such as no reader of ordinary perception can doubt they must i think in every class of mind produce the conviction that you were exclusively occupied with the good you might do and not at all with your reputation as an artist this apology is perfectly valid in relation to the particular work in question and Sir John might have added another. The notes on the army were a series of reports of which indeed the whole should have been read consecutively by the Secretary of State, but each of which referred to a different branch of the War Department. But the case is different when we pass to a philosophic treatise, which is addressed to thinkers. Some of the lack of sustained coherence in Miss Nightingale's suggestions for thought, and many of its repetitions may be referred to the method of composition. Different chapters were written at different times, but when she thought of publishing it, she did not care to correct those defects. Why was this? The explanation is to be found, I think, partly in a view which she had come to hold of the literary art, partly in a certain impetuosity of temper. She had put literary pursuits away from her as a vain temptation. She cared for writing only as a means to action, and she could not see that literary form is of the essence of the matter if writing is to influence current thought on difficult subjects. Infinitely laborious again when action was in sight, 
incapable of infinite patience when she saw the need she was content to throw out her thoughts careless of the form there is a complete and consistent scheme underlying her suggestions it was ever present in her own mind and she could not be troubled to pare and prune to revise and recast in the interests of what she despised as mere artistry known omnia possumus those who are capable of completion in one field are often impatient of it in another ruskin so careful of finish in his literary craftsmanship was asked why he so seldom finished his drawings to the edges oh he replied i can't be bothered to do the tailoring mr jowett urged miss nightingale in one of his letters november seventeenth eighteen sixty one to devote time and trouble to improving the form of her suggestions no one can get the form in which it is necessary to put forth new ideas without great labor and thought and tact it takes years after ideas are clear in your own mind to mould them into a shape intelligible to others miss nightingale's answer to mr jowett is not in existence but i imagine that it was to the effect that she had no time for the tailoring section three the difference in the advice given by mr mill and mr jowett respectively went deeper however than to the question of form and here again a consideration of the point will throw light on miss nightingale's character the book was ostensibly one of reconstruction it was in fact very largely one of revolt the first and the third volumes are a philosophical exposition of her creed law as the basis of a new theology the second devoted to practical deductions is a criticism of the religion and social life of her day the criticism under both heads is scathing and full of touches of her characteristically caustic humor this second volume includes a full discussion of the position of women and a plea for their emancipation from many of the restrictions of the time it is easy to see how much of this appeals strongly to mr mill and why he deemed its publication desirable and it is equally easy to understand that much of it offended mr jowett and why he deemed revision essential i shall not presume on this point to decide between her counsellors as her biographer i content myself with recording that the plea for moderation for conciliation for suavity which mr jowett urged in scores of marginalia and in dozens of letters seems to have prevailed the essence of the plea was that the new should as far as possible be grafted upon the old it was a plea for accommodation miss nightingale had ideas which were of real value but they would not avail to modify and purify religious thought if they were presented in too combative and revolutionary a form one passage though not among those to which mr jowett more particularly objected will serve to illustrate his point of view i select it because it is characteristic of the writer's humor it is from a section entitled john bull and his church john bull will have plenty for his money he will have his services long till he is quite tired that he may have his money's worth like his concerts plenty in them no cheating till he goes home yawning so he has his confession lumping all his sins together and then his absolution and then his praise and then his litany asking for every imaginable thing and ending with asking god for mercy on all men lest he should have left out anything till there does not remain to god the smallest choice or judgment 
and then his sermon a long one three services in one that he may not have put on his best clothes nor paid all his tithes for nothing no person blessed with any sense of humour is likely to find this passage offensive but mr jowett objected to it because it is not historically true j b had a church and liturgy made for him by henry the eighth and queen elizabeth and human nature in churches is conservative and generally mr jowett asked miss nightingale not to find fault with the times or with anybody but to endeavour out of the elements that exist to reconstruct religion theology is a progressive science each age adds something to the idea of god let miss nightingale seek to win converts by leading them gently by the hand not as it were by knocking them upon the head she had peculiar advantages for doing this let her be very careful not to throw them away so did mr jowett reason with her the point is put in innumerable forms but this paragraph from a letter already mentioned november seventeenth eighteen sixty one will serve as a type i should not much care if only a comparatively small part of your work is finished its greatest value would be that it comes from you who worked in the crimea shall i say one odd and perhaps rather impertinent thing you have a great advantage in writing on these subjects as a woman do not throw it away but use the advantage to the utmost in writing against the world athanasia contra mundum every feeling every sympathy should be made an ally so that with the clearest statement of the meaning there is the least friction and drawback possible whether it was mr jowett's criticism that alone or mainly caused miss nightingale to abandon the idea of publishing her suggestions for thought i do not know but two things may be said only once so far as i have traced did she take the world at all into her confidence on the subject of her religious beliefs it was twelve years later in some articles in fraser's magazine to which we shall come in due course in those articles the fundamental doctrines of the suggestions for thought are contained but they are stated in a manner and a temper which showed that she had given heed to the mild wisdom of mr jowett the other thing that may be said is that for mr jowett personally miss nightingale felt from the first a high regard at the time with which we are now concerned they knew each other by correspondence only though of course mr clough would have had much to tell her of his friend i do so like mr jowett she wrote at this time to a friend and at the same time mr jowett wrote to her i reckon you if i may do so among unseen friends presently they met the friendship ripened and remained firm to the end end of the religious sanction suggestions for thought part one